0: Forever,
1: Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between
2: us. Hey. Yeah. Hello, I'm Alison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and walking around without a knee brace.
0: Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bi bisexual icon, and
2: gay. <laughs> and this is just between us, for a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. So you're walking now? Yes, I mean, I have been walking without crutches for a few weeks, but I just got the clear from my surgeon's office that I don't need to use my knee brace anymore. So I am I'm currently relearning how to walk properly. Does your knee feel...
0: You know how you had the subluxations and the kneecap was moving around? Does the kneecap feel more steady, more secure? You can feel it changed?
2: No. I mean, I never felt it as <laughs> as unstable unless a dislocation or subluxation was happening. It was only in those moments where you would really notice that. Um, right. But it is so wild to like not know how to walk. Like I was at PT today and she was like, and then and then you, you bend and then you heel to toe. And it's just like. Oh, like I don't have the memory for it. My leg is so used to being um, straight when I would walk in that, Aww. you know, I was in a locked brace for seven weeks. And so now it's like a real challenge to remember to bend my knee when I'm walking. Also, because my knee is, it's not like my knee is like, I mean, my knee is a lot better, no. but it's still very mm-hmm. stiff. It's not, you know, it still hurts. It's not like a regular knee. And so it's, it's going to be a challenge. What's the timeline on being like, quote, unquote, back to what you were. I think that hopefully in like another five or six weeks, like oh. it would only be like I can't I still can't do like certain sports and stuff. But I think that yeah. like my mobility and hopefully my range of motion and my walking will be back to normal so is a good goal. Well, incremental steps forward. Yeah. Pun intended. <laughs> I mean, I was scrolling through my phone the other day and I saw a photo of my leg right afterwards and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, it's gotten so much better. I mean, it feels like it's been a long time. It's been like seven weeks, but the amount of improvement is really amazing. It's like the body is a, is a wonderful thing. It'll put
0: itself back
2: together. It's It's kind of,
0: I mean, you know, obviously God, science, whatever, but it is interesting that like the skin just heals and yeah. things just go back together. They cobble themselves with white blood cells and figure it
2: out. But like I do really need the PT. Like and it's wild to think that like a few decades ago people didn't really go to PT after something like this. And like I don't know how. Like I'm having to do so many exercising so so many exercises, having to like learn different things, having to like really build up the muscle, build up the range of motion. Like Mm -hmm. like the fact that like that wasn't the norm in like the 50s. Like even, you know, Mm -hmm. like how did people recover from this kind of stuff? (laughs) They don't. You just
0: become my dad who limps. Yeah, like wild. My dad limps. He's disabled in his hand, so he one of his hands doesn't work, and like that. They were just like, "Yep, that's life." (laughs) But you adapt. I mean, he he walks how he walks, and he uses his dead hand, for lack of a better word, uh, the way that he knows how to use it, and he can has figured out. But yeah, it wouldn't. No, he's. You don't have PT. They just go.
2: All right, now you're back in the world. Enjoy. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very thankful for physical therapists and all the great work that they do.
0: <laughs> yeah, and to be in 2022 when, like, science has caught up, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways. Maybe in the future, you would have, like, an anti-gravity boot, and you'd be able to, like, float around.
2: <laughs> I, I look forward to that day. Um, <laughs> we have got a great episode for everyone today. We're going to be asking Jake Hunt some tough questions about small farming. And later, we're going to be talking all about my new book, Overthinking About You, which is available for pre-order now and comes out on May 3rd, and I'm pushing through my discomfort to promote myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> but first, we have got to answer a listener's question, and you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous France. Ooh, international. Truly international. Oui, oui. oui. (laughs) Ça va. Como ça va? All right. Now you're showing off. All right. Okay, sorry. Hi, Gabby and Allison. I love listening to the podcast, and I've been wanting to submit an international question for quite some time because I always find your answers enlightening. And since I just had yet another frustrating conversation with my boyfriend regarding my addiction to YouTube and Facebook, I would really love to hear your advice about it. So more than 10 years ago, as I was studying abroad and going through a bit of a depression, I discovered YouTube and haven't stopped watching it since. This addiction now also includes Facebook. I call it that because sometimes I really do lose control over my consumption of content and just can't seem to be able to stop. I think I use the videos and feeds as a derivative way when I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed, but it is also a bad habit that in turn makes my anxiety worse. I have been slowly getting better over the last few years, mainly due to the fact that I adopted a cat and met my boyfriend, so I now have two people at home who can prevent me from turning into a complete zombie. I have to admit that without supervision, I often struggle a lot more to self-regulate my use of these apps. It prevents me from spending my time in a more balanced and meaningful manner, like working, reading, or developing hobbies. But what also concerns me is that this issue is taken very personally by my boyfriend, who gets mad when I go on Facebook or YouTube in front of him even when I feel I am not being excessive about it. It has reached a point where he wants me to hide those activities from him, so as not to upset him. He resents me if I don't comply. But even though I agree that I have a problem, I don't like the way he goes about it. To me, it feels like he's projecting his own insecurities and trying to control me rather than help me reach my goal, which is not to quit for someone else's sake, but to develop a healthier relationship to these things on my own. Because they do add value into my life, especially YouTube. After all, that's where I know you guys from. Speaking of which, I remember an old JBU video where Allison mentioned that she went to Paris once and hated it because people there were not nice. One time, she had trouble opening the door of the metro and no one helped her. (laughs) this is so funny okay well Allison I must confess I have once been in the exact situation except I myself was the unhelpful Parisian not willing to open the door for the young American tourists because it's not that hard they will figure it out eventually French people French people (laughs) maybe that was you so I, people! Imagine. why are you like this? It's unbelievable. So I would like to sincerely apologize on behalf of Paris. It's still a beautiful city. Come visit again someday. I love Paris. I've been to Paris. I had a great time. John is like loves Paris and it's his life's goal to make me like it too. <laughs> but, but we got it. I gotta go on that metro again and see if anybody helps me. <laughs> Anyway, how do you think me and my boyfriend should approach this issue? Should I let go of my pride and accept to be accountable to him because I can't resolve this on my own? Or is there danger of entering a toxic dynamic? This is really the only big problem in our relationship. We met five years ago. We live together and are planning to spend our lives together. I hope you keep doing your amazing work. Love from Paris. Red flag. I so often want to be like, well, you know, but with this, I'm like, yikes. (laughs) Red flag. And you can tell him
0: I said that. Red flag. You can't. It's controlling. I super resent when someone tells me to get off my phone. Number one, stay out of my Stay out of my business. Stay out of my life. It's not your problem.
2: And two, like. My God, I'm having flashbacks to shooting JBU sketches and you, every and like multiple crews waiting for you to get off your phone. And then us asking you to, and you getting so mad at us.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm better at it now, but like, you don't know what I'm doing. And like, stay out of it. So I don't know. I feel like this is a slippery slope. And you know what's interesting is I've been reflecting a bit on a past abusive relationship. Trigger warning. We can wait one second. In college, I was in a relationship where I was, the partner was physically violent with me. And I've been thinking a lot about that and what the, and, and, and other things, not that your boyfriend is that way, but other things around that relationship that, that were uncomfortable for me. And one of the things was this person sort of trying to control what I did on my own time and trying to control what I did with my own products. Your phone is your phone. Like, you're allowed to do what you want with it. And like the way that like, you know, this person would sort of say, well, I I want you to only wear these type of shoes. And it seems small. And it's like, kind of weird. But it just like I I don't like his way of going about this because you you seem to know, like you're aware of what's wrong with it. It's not helping you get healthy, it's shaming. It's making you feel like like you're lesser than or something. Like I I think you're spot on in that the the method of going about it is is a slight red flag, right? So so for instance, if somebody is not drinking alcohol. I've seen friends in relationships, right, where maybe the person gets a little too drunk. There's some partners that will go, you know, like, hey, we're trying to not I'm not going to drink with you or we're trying to, you know, do these things. And that's nice. And then I've seen people, friends of mine who are trying not to drink or who drink a little bit too much in public. And the partner is is like, I better not see a drink in your hand. Or like the partner is is like they'll get a drink and the partner will be like, you know, Oh, really? Another one? And I can very distinctly notice the difference between how the person is making the person with the addiction feel.
2: And it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, something that's really jumping out to me about this is the lack of empathy, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, he is reacting with anger towards you instead of empathy. That, like, this is probably a part of your life that is 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 frustrating for you. I mean, it, it seems like it's something you're aware of something you're working on something that you would like to, to change. And, and it seems like you have changed and that you're still you mm-hmm. know, that you're like on a, a journey of, of developing a healthier relationship with these things. Yeah, I think I don't know him. But I feel like I think when you react that emotionally, and with that kind of anger, I, there probably is some projection of some kind happening. I don't know it to what extent or why. But And it is hard, right? When it's like, well, it's just this one area of our life, right? In all other areas, the way that he treats me, the way we communicate is more kind. And I guess it's just a thing of thinking about, okay, so if if another thing comes up in our life down the road where we disagree on how to handle it or or I want to behave in a way that he doesn't agree with, is this the MO? Is Mm -hmm. the MO for him to get mad and for him to want me to lie to him? you know, mm-hmm. or to do things in right. private. And, and that is really not a, not a great dynamic to be walking into long-term. To ask you to do something in private, your partner's, like now he's just creating
0: secrecy and separation. I also want to say with coping mechanisms, you talked about how it was a coping mechanism for depression. Coping mechanisms just don't go away. They need to be replaced with something. Right. It's why alcoholics become obsessed with coffee you can't just cold turkey get rid of the coping mechanism because you you need to fill it with something else. Right. You can't just stop. And so, you know, I think sometimes people are like, but this is, this is my dynamic. And then the other person wants you to just not have that dynamic. But you, if you got obsessed with knitting or if you started doing some other hobby that like filled in that time because you have addictive tendencies... You might become very obsessed. Maybe you get into kickboxing. Maybe you get really into like, you know, growing geodes or whatever. Something that I tried to do that I failed at. (laughs) But like your addictive tendencies might still crop up in other ways. So is it just that like one is more acceptable? Yeah, maybe. But you can't get rid of the coping mechanism. You just have to, you have to replace it. And he has to empathize with that.
2: And I wonder if what he's potentially reacting to is feeling ignored, right? Or feeling like yeah. you're not, that, like you're you're kind of tapping into some unhealed problem that he has about feeling like people don't care about him, or that They're not listening, that he's not a priority, or you know that people would rather be doing something else than spending time with him. And so this really actually feels like a great thing to work through, specifically in couples counseling, where like I don't think that this this dynamic is is going to go away on its own. I mean, I think you can maybe do some if if, if couple's counseling is't available to you or affordable, like I think that there are some some resources that you can find some books, some websites, you know, various things. But this is something that I do think that is a relationship cycle or like a behavioral mm-hmm. pattern that needs to be broken. I don't think that you can long term maintain. This relationship around this thing, I think that you guys have to do the work to have a new relational pattern around it. And that's, I think, probably easiest done in couples therapy. But also, mm-hmm. I think you can potentially do it on your own. But I think what what you're going to have to see is his willingness to do that. Right? Yeah, because I do think there's a version where you guys could go to therapy get a better understanding of what these videos are doing for you and for you to get a better understanding of why he has such an emotional reaction to them. Then you can sort of like work together, meet in the middle, break the cycle. Yeah. But if he is just like, no, this is the way that it is. I am right. You are wrong. Keep this away from me. You have a problem. I'm doing everything right. This isn't my problem. This is your problem. That is a sign of bigger issues,
0: (laughs) you know? Yeah, I think you need to, it's the note behind the note. It's not, I'm addicted to YouTube and he's mad. It's, I have depression and anxiety. This has been my coping mechanism for a long time. This is why it's important to me and why it's emotional to me and what it means to me. He has to be willing to say, you know, in a past relationship, my girlfriend never listened. So I, that's what it's bringing up for me. I'm being triggered by your watching YouTube. I'm not just mad at you. I don't think I'm better than you. It's because, you know, I dated someone who would never remember anything about me. And I feel sad about that. Like it's always, it's this like really hard level of communication that I am having to learn with my partner where you just have to be so vulnerable and honest and like share stuff that you're like, this is going to sound stupid Because on the surface, it sounds frivolous. But like, you know, it could even be like, you know, him being like, my mom used to watch soap operas all day and not pay attention to me. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it has to go to these like places where you're like, I understand that we're making like this this big. What what is this small thing a representative
2: of? And I don't think that like the fact that he has this emotional response to it is the deal breaker. It's Mm -hmm. how is he going to handle this emotional response? Is he willing to take any accountability for his role in this emotional response? Not that like it's his fault that he's having it, but is he willing to say, oh, maybe the way I'm reacting to this situation, is it appropriate for what's actually happening because I'm being tapped into a a previous experience, right? Mm -hmm. Or is there no accountability there? Is there no Mm self-awareness there? Is there just blame? Is there just projecting? And that's where I get really worried. That's where a life with somebody like that is going to be hard you know, like, because maybe just other shit hasn't come up yet. But if that's how they respond to conflict or respond to their own emotional reactivity, that's really tough. And that's something you really Mm -hmm. have to sit with yourself and figure out, is that the kind of life that I want? Is that the kind of partner that I want? Yeah, totally. So keep us updated. I hope that that helps. I hope I I do not think that this is like dead in the water. I think it's really just how does he respond to to trying to break this cycle and is a receptive to trying to break the cycle. So if you want to submit your international question, please send it to just us, pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our
0: highly esteemed guest Jake Hunt. Stay tuned.
2: Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions.
0: This week on the show, our guest is Jake Hunt, who is the managing partner of Windy Brow Farms, a diversified farm, orchard, bakery, and creamery in northwestern New Jersey. He runs the business along with his parents, tackling the unique challenges that come with all family businesses and those that impact small farms and rural communities in a state that isn't necessarily known for
2: being rural. Hi Jake. Hi guys. So we're like so excited to talk to you about small farms and what that means and what misconceptions are about it. And so I guess my first question is what is the day-to-day like running a small farm?
1: I oversleep most days and dread the day ahead of me. (laughs) Uh, No, (laughs) not not actually. Um, (laughs) The day-to-day, for us, we're like a uh, mostly a centralized family farm. So it's It's dealing with my parents, mostly throwing different questions, different problems at us, just kind of facing customer issues head on, facing employee issues head on, dealing with every single week we have a different labor issue, you know, and then eventually we make our way out into the field and actually start doing something. Although this time of year, it's still cold and we're not actually doing anything, but for the most part, the day to day is just dealing with with whatever gets thrown to us. There's no there's no one set schedule. There's never a set schedule when you're a farmer, but there's no one set schedule.
0: What are the things that you do on the farm? Right. So you have like the orchard, which my partner and I were in and you rode up on a truck and like what you, and you have all these animals. So like what are the, the like tasks that you've got to do?
1: Yep. So we grow um, about 50 varieties of apples and about 20 varieties of peaches. We grow vegetables, about 30 acres of vegetables. And then we have animals in the form of a petting zoo, but not necessarily animals that we have to worry about producing anything for us. Mostly just make sure they don't bite any little kids. And if they do, make sure they don't cry too much. And then we also run like a a full bakery, a full creamery. So uh, just making pastry for the day, making bread for the day, making ice cream. We make ice cream probably four days a week right now, just for our store, just for the local population, which is insane. People in Northwestern New Jersey eat far too much ice cream. I eat far too much ice cream. <laughs> you know, a lot of planning, you know, a lot of what is the next week hold? What does the future hold? What is the weather going to be like in a week? How much crying are we going to do when we get a late frost in May? Fingers crossed that that doesn't happen. But how much are we at the will of mother nature this year? You know,
0: can you start with like the history of Windy Brow, like when it started and and your family and when you kind of took over more of the day to day operations?
1: So Windy Brow was founded in like the early 1900s, primarily as a dairy farm. And then like so many local farms, they had a fire, which happened, you know, prevalently in the 30s and 40s. And in the early 40s, they had a fire, burned down the dairy barn, burned down all of that operation. So they transitioned to planting fruit. In 1946, they planted about 500 acres of fruit, and they were one of the first major fruit producers in northwestern New Jersey. Fast forward, you know, 60 years in the future, my parents and my family bought the farm in the early 2000s. But, you know, we've always had like roots in agriculture here. So like one of the reasons why I'm here in this tiny corner and didn't go away, didn't disappear into the the void is that my family's been here for 350 years. So we're one of the founding families of this town that we grew up in, that I grew up in. And, you know, there's kind of that, that history and that, that family guilt keeping me here. Um, <laughs> I came home in 2013 from college, started an ice cream company, and then just kind of, you know, got into it, got stuck, got hooked, trying to survive and trying to make it work for not just me, but for the other people in the family and for the other people in the community.
0: Yeah, how hard is it to turn to for you to be turning a profit all the time?
1: All the time? Do we have to turn a profit all the time? Is that (laughs) is that what this is? Is That what businesses do? Oh shit! (laughs) We live and die by September and October every year. We live and die about whether we have a fruit crop every year. You know, if we get fruit wiped out by a frost in May, if blossoms get wiped out by a frost in May, then we're screwed, frankly. And then it's like we're surviving on what past years have done, what good past years have given us some sort of foothold in the bank. You know, So as climates become more and more unstable and unpredictable, we become more and more unstable and predictable and are trying to constantly uh, subsidize our September, October, by doing things other times of the year. So it's not gotten easier to stay profitable, I guess. Mm-hmm you know, it's it's not gotten that much harder just because of where we're situated. We're in a populous area. We're 45 minutes from New York City. We have people that come out and find us constantly and we have a lot of local support, but it's definitely not getting easier with, with so much other instability in the world.
2: Did your parents have a background in farming when they bought this property or did they learn more on the fly?
1: So my dad grew up on a farm, on a dairy farm, and then later on a, a crop farm. You know, if you're from this area and you grew up here, you know what farming is. No, no, nobody ever thinks about farms when they think about New Jersey, right? Nobody thinks about the Garden State actually being the Garden State. They just think about it smelling awfully. And it really doesn't. Like, if you're from here, you know farming. So my dad grew up on a farm. My mom, once she started with my dad, uh, was always surrounded by agriculture. I grew up surrounded by agriculture. So they didn't necessarily know, like, fruit farming. They learned that on the fly. We have an orchard manager that's been with us for 35 years. You know, it's all a matter of trial, trial and error, as anything is in business. But they figured it out. I think, <laughs> even though we disagree on something every single day. But they figured it out.
2: How many employees are on the farm, and does it shift throughout the year depending on what you need? Yeah,
1: it shifts throughout the year. One full-time year-round employee, the orchard manager, and and me, so two technically two full-time year-round employees. 25 to 30 seasonal employees. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we really gear up for busy season. Right now, there's probably about five part-time seasonal that are working as we get into planting planting season. That'll that'll increase and then decrease and then increase again in the fall when we're back in picking season.
0: Yeah, one of the most important things, I mean, so I moved we met because my partner and I moved to the area. And like one of the most important things is we go to you guys for coffee, we go to you guys for like the general store. I think like one of the things I really want to push here on the podcast is like helping local businesses, going to local businesses, getting your things from a family farm, a family business, which has been like really wonderful. So how important was it for you guys to be like, okay, we're going to have this coffee shop. We're going to have this bakery. We're going to have this general store. Like how much does that supplement and help? And how much has the community responded to that?
1: You know, I think, the pandemic really pushed people to really refocus their, their ideals to supporting local businesses. Now, whether that sticks, we have yet to see. We've always been very locally supported. We've always been very focused on what we can do for the community. You know, there isn't, although I shouldn't say this, there's going to be a Starbucks in town in like a year, which is scary. No! But I know, right? Awful. But I won't complain because I'll end up going there. <laughs> but yeah there hasn't been a Starbucks in town there hasn't been another local coffee shop doing this there hasn't been a high quality bakery in the area so you know it's it's about us being able to diversify the business as much as possible like i said to subsidize our fruit season and being able to offer different things that other people aren't doing and even if other people are doing them doing them 10 times better which is what we've always been about so there's a reason the farms survived since 1946.
2: Mm -hmm. And what's the difference between how like a smaller farm is operated versus like these huge, large
1: farms? We don't rely on government subsidies uh, is probably like the, the major thing. You know, we don't have anybody to catch us if we fall. And with that, you know, we don't necessarily rely on major distribution networks. We don't rely that much on having to worry about whether we meet like commodity pricing. We survive in the sense that we are supported by this community and a hundred miles away from us. Maybe, if that, maybe 50 miles mm-hmm. away from us. And that's really all that matters, which is okay. When I started the ice cream company, you know, we, were, we were getting all this recognition. We've gotten all this national recognition. Everybody always asked me like, you want to be the next Ben & Jerry's? No, I have no desire to be the next Ben & Jerry's. I have the desire to make really good ice cream, support a local community, Be able to see people that I know day in and day out, you know, come into my store, talk to me, you know, we have, we have the same customers that have been coming here since the forties with their grandparents, you know, that's insane. So, you know, we're surviving based on how well we can support those around us and those within this community, not necessarily surviving on how many billions of dollars we get from the government, government for growing corn that we don't need, but that's another topic.
0: (laughs) What do you mean growing corn that we don't need?
1: Growing a lot of things that we don't need. You know, we consume a lot more than we need in America. We consume and throw away a lot more than we need. The future of agriculture in this state, in this country is going to be interesting.
0: In what sense?
1: You want me to deep dive, don't you?
0: Yes, I want the tea. I want you to spill the tea on all the uh, like talk shit. About the other farms. Let's go.
1: I don't want to talk shit about the other farms. You know, I, <laughs> by saying that like we need to center ourselves around a more plant based vegan di- diet, I am essentially signing my death certificate because I am, you know, a hypocrite in the sense that I am saying that people still need to eat pastry and almond croissants and, and ice cream and all this other stuff that, that helps me survive and helps me live. But as a country, as a world, we will not feed eight, nine, 10 billion people on an animal protein-based diet, period.
0: So what do you mean where like they're growing corn that they don't need or that? Like, because I, you know, I imagine you're like with a small farm, the animals are being used in a certain way versus like, you know, what you imagine, which is these factory farms where the animals are just being like milked all day long.
1: Well, that's a little bit of a misnomer. They're not really being milked all day long. The cows are are milked when Mm. milk needs to come out of them. Right? It's a little weird. In terms of growing the corn that we don't need, you know, all the corn that is grown in the US is utilized in one way or another, whether it's in grains for for food, for animals, whether it's in you know corn syrup that goes into food products, all of the corn is utilized. But 60% of that corn is subsidized. So we're throwing money at producers or, or, or the products that we could find better utilization for that money. That's the more my spin on that. Is that you know? Do we need to spend three hundred and sixty billion dollars in ten years on on farm subsidies? No, but I don't have a solution. <laughs> you know, it's all going to come down to so twenty twenty three. There's a new farm bill that will be voted on sometime prior to September of twenty twenty three. It's going to be interesting to see what's in that. You know, I think it's going to be super highly diversified. I think there's going to be depending on what happens in November, there's going to be a lot of focus on efforts for conservation practices, efforts for climate focused agriculture efforts for increasing data utilization in agriculture. I think uh, all of those things so like seven percent of the current farm bill is goes to conservation practices goes to CRPs, which are outlays of millions and millions of acres for conservation and reducing greenhouse gas emissions and whatever Seven percent is not a big number of. Of eight hundred and sixty-seven billion dollars. Even a couple percent, even a couple more million acres would make a difference. A- and maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be come out of commodities. Maybe it has to come out of some other aspect of the farm bill. But I'll get shot if I say it needs to come out of the seventy percent of the farm bill that goes to STAP, SNAP and other nutrition programs. So
0: right, it's hard. It's like a lose-lose.
1: Right, it is because it's not. It's not a big percentage that goes to the commodity. So there really is no, no winning in politics.
2: What is the mental toll of having a business that is so determined by the climate when climate change is happening?
1: I'll let you know in a month. You know, every <laughs> year it's different.
2: But each
0: year, what happens, you know? You
1: know, every year we are like by the seat of our pants from now, basically. You know, the, this past week in the Northeast, it was, it was 18 degrees two days ago. That's not unheard of, Wow. but it's not good. It's not normal. I don't know what normal is anymore. Right. You know, every year between now and May 15th, you know, May 20th, we are just sitting and waiting. You know, we'll be in blossom in about two weeks. Then we've got four weeks where basically we need to wish and hope and pray for no frost. Wish and hope and pray for some way to mitigate if there is frost or cold temperatures. There's this glycol spray that you can go and and spray on fruit that supposedly encapsulates the blossoms and keeps them from freezing. Whether that works or not, I don't know. Whether the technology is going to advance or not, I don't know. You know, we're in a tough situation because all of our orchards are on different topographies. So we can't put up windmills to basically rotate air so it keeps things from from freezing. We don't have access to a lot of that technology. We don't have access or capital access to sending drones out and circulating air. Uh We just wait and sit. And if we're okay, great. And we're going to have a great season. And if we're not okay, then we worry for the next six months.
0: How close does it come to like having to shut down?
1: It never really comes to that extreme, right? Because we're small. We're 130 acres. You know, we're not betting the farm on that. This year, it'll be interesting. You know, if we were to lose a crop this year, I don't know what prices at other farms are. I don't know how much it's going to cost us to replace that fruit. We'll, we'll find a way to replace it with fruit from other parts of the state, from apples from New York. But I don't know what the prices are going to be like because everything is insane right now. And I don't know that they're not going to be in the same boat as us. You
0: know, the the
1: entire East Coast is on one, basically. So if we can't get fruit from the tri-state area, where do we go? I don't feel comfortable going and buying peaches in South Carolina and selling them as my own or telling somebody they're going to be as good as my own. Right.
2: Right. So you do sometimes subsidize with, with fruit from other small farms near you?
1: If we have to. And even if we don't have to, we generally get some fruit from South Jersey in the beginning of July just to, you know, everybody else has peaches. Why don't you? So it's one of those situations. But if there's access to it, I don't know if that's going to change this year. I don't know if that's going to change in future years. You know, it's all a waiting game. So the mental toll is significant, more so on my father, who who is more of a cynic than I am, which is hard.
0: I mean, small farms are really at the mercy of climate change.
1: At the mercy of Mother Nature, at the mercy of climate change, at the mercy of not even climate change, climate instability.
2: Right. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Just between us. And we're back. Can you speak a little to the difference between organic farms and non-organic farms?
1: Sure. So, you know, <laughs> that is a loaded question. Uh, um, <laughs> so, in terms of the actual like base level of what the difference is, is in on organic farms, you know, they're supposedly pesticide-free, although there are organic pesticides. They're supposedly fungicide-free, although they're all are organic-approved fungicides. Oh, they're non-GMO, which is a big thing. I mean, we're we are non-GMO. Nothing that we grow on the farm is non-GMO, but we're not organic. The realistic outlay for farms in north, northern New Jersey in any eastern climate, basically, is that if you're going to be viable on a large scale, if you're going to feed people and continue to feed people into the future with land-based, with soil-based agriculture, there's no way to realistically do that organically. Because there's so much pest pressure, because there's so much fungal pressure, because moisture and weather and everything changes week to week. There's no predictability here if if i was in arizona sure if i was in california sure but the the base level difference is you know the restriction of use of gmos which nobody that's growing on a farm that's less than 200 acres is utilizing gmos necessarily unless they're growing corn unless they're growing cow corn that people aren't even eating oh right i'm not growing organic soybeans for any reason or i'm not growing mm-hmm. non gmo gmo soybeans you know for any mm-hmm. reason I'm not growing the non-GMO Arctic crisp apple that doesn't brown. Mm -hmm. So the main difference is mentality and, again, cynicism.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because it's this disconnect I find, right? Like the people in larger cities are like, I want to buy this organic. But then they don't really know what that means. And then it's like this disconnect between like the actual rural area of the fa- of the people doing the farming like if you're buying from a small farm it's kind of this strange disconnect of like what people believe themselves to be doing when they eat which is like good and moral and what is like actually happening to people that are running small farm businesses
1: yeah and and how far did that organic tomato have to travel to get to you how far did that organic head us lettuce travel right if you go to a supermarket and buy a, a organic tomato Nine times out of 10, it came from California.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, is it really worth the carbon outlay to get it to you, to make right. you feel better about yourself? Right. Than it is going to the farm down the street that love and care into that tomato that's going to taste 10 times better because it's not grown to be shipped across the country. It's grown to be enjoyed by the consumer, even though maybe they had to grow it conventionally because that's what reality dictates in this climate.
0: Right. Driving to get our groceries or to get, you know, our stuff from, from where it's made on your local farm. In terms of like the, the creamery and the ice cream business, how, is that stuff you're making that from stuff, milk or whatever that you're getting from the, from Windy Brow?
1: So New Jersey is a fun state to operate a dairy business in. <laughs> so we're making it from ice cream mix that comes from a dairy cooperative in upper New York state. Mm. You know, we have a, I have dairy cows. We have a relationship with a dairy farm down the street. If we were to want to make ice cream from that milk, even though it's pasteurized on that dairy farm that's two and a half miles down the street, it would have to be pasteurized again on my farm. Even though it's being trucked from one place to another that's less than five miles away, we'd have to put in a full vat pasteurization system here on the farm. You know, a quarter of a million dollars that I don't have to invest in that part of the business. So, you know, we're doing the best we can with what we have presented in front of us. We are doing the best that we can with the health the board of health, uh, within New Jersey Wow. and, and whatever other regulations would have thrown at us. If, if that was the situation. So, you know, we're not utilizing milk that's from New Jersey, regrettably, but we're utilizing other ingredients. We're making, we're making peach ice cream from our peaches. We're making, you know, apple ice cream from our apples. We're utilizing things that we grow on the farm. We're making chocolate ice cream from scratch, not from a can, you know, as many things as we can utilizing local ingredients as possible. And if not within 300 miles of our home base for the most part.
2: You've alluded to this a little bit, but do you feel like the rules and regulations that are in place, both statewide and and federally, aren't really serving small farms?
1: 100%. But they weren't built to serve small farms. They were built to protect people, right? But the people that wrote them, I doubt, have spent a day on a farm in their life. So I don't know. I I don't know. They were they were built to protect people, or they're built to protect an ideal society, right?
0: What What do you mean?
1: The systems were built to protect the people consuming, ultimately the people consuming the product, not the people making the product. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many regulatory things that happen in New Jersey that don't happen in New York. There's, and I don't know why. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know why. You know, New York's big slogan is is better for business or some something along those lines. I don't know why. Other states are so be- so much better at creating an environment that's conducive to starting and succeeding in small business. And I don't know what the solution is.
0: Like, why do you have to pasteurize again something that comes from five minutes down the road?
1: I, would you like to call the representative from the board? <laughs> call? I'll give you the number. You can talk to think You'd probably be more persuasive than I am. So, I will call. <laughs> I know you will.
0: <laughs> I'll just call them directly and be like, listen. What is going on? I understand that in your mind, you're making things safer for the person, but you're like doing it at the expense of um, making any sense whatsoever.
1: Yeah, you got it. There you go. (laughs) You could be a small farm owner. I'll sign you up.
2: What is like the the real risk of eating non-organic? I mean, how much of of this fear around eating non-organic is just like propaganda versus like it's a, a real risk?
1: I think it depends on what you're eating. You know, if you're going home and washing your fruits and vegetables, you know, you're not going to necessarily wash your meat. You're not necessarily going to wash your, your eggs or your milk. But, you know, if you're going home and washing your fruits and vegetables, you're, safe. the big 10 or the, the big five, really, are like broccoli, cruciform vegetables that the pesticides permeate more, more readily. No farmer wants to spray more than they have to. No farmer wants to applicate Mm -hmm. more fertilizer or more pesticide than they have to. Our bills for that type of application is already probably 25% of our annual budget. You know, we don't want to do more than we have to. So we utilize programs like, we specifically utilize programs that Rutgers outlays like uh, IPM, which is Integrated Pest Management. They come out to the farm, tell us if we have an issue, tell us what we need to do. When we tell people this, you know, there's definitely like two sides of of the divide there's people that will strictly never consume a pesticide in their life because they've read some mother jones article that is telling them that it will kill them absolutely and then there's the people that are realistic and understand that we can't operate a business you know if, if everybody in america decided that they could eat ugly apples and ugly peppers and ugly eggplant and things that don't look like everything that they've consumed every day for all of their life then that would be a different story, but you know, we mm-hmm. we want nice looking fruit. We want nice looking vegetables. Is that right? Maybe not. Is that the reality that we live in? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are we going to change millions of people's minds with with telling them it's okay? It's not going to hurt you. You can cut out this bad spot. No, we're not because we're spoiled.
2: So that's really what's driving the use of pesticides is more for aesthetic reasons,
1: aesthetic reasons and economical reasons you know we would have probably 40 to 50% fruit loss just by having things drop off the tree because of pest pressure having things having too much fungal damage that we could not sell it realistically that we couldn't even process it right so i think a lot of it is aesthetics a lot of it is economic realities of small and large farmers that that are again we circle back always to climate that are the things are Unstable, that things are unpredictable, that we're not you know there's something to be said for for organizations like plenty i don 't know if you know plenty
0: no what is that
1: so plenty agriculture centralized in california there's something to be said they 're a vertical farm operation they 're growing mostly like leafy greens indoors in you know buildings the size of Costco right with led lights and a fully integrated system where they recycle all of the water where well, they recycle like ninety percent of the water. There's something to be said for that type of farming that where you can Mm -hmm. control your environment. I don't know whether that's a realistic thing. Like you're not gonna grow cows indoors. You're not gonna grow eggplants and peppers and tomatoes on a grand scale indoors like that. And you're not gonna grow apples and and peaches like that. Mm -hmm. But but for what they're doing, if we could be better about controlling environments, we could be better about agriculture.
2: Almost making like biospheres, <laughs> like, right? Like
1: basically, I mean, I think they were founded like on the idea that like this system will wind up on Mars, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Wow. I can't wait for windy brow Mars. <laughs> I will be there. Yeah. I'm willing to travel that far for ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you have other, you have like this whole general store that you buy stuff for. You have Windy Brown merch. Like you're, you're doing it. You're, you're not just relying on the climate. So.
1: We're doing it. Yeah. We're trying, you know, Topo Chico. Mal comes and get Topo Chico. They're Topo (laughs) Chico all the time.
0: Mal does come and get their Topo Chico.
1: (laughs) I'm the only Topo Chico dealer within, you know, probably a mile. So, you know. (laughs) I'm sure you could get Topo Chico somewhere else.
2: Well, would you like to play a game show that you can't get anywhere else?
1: Uh, I would love that.
2: <laughs> okay, great. So Hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you just tell me what you would do in that situation. Does that sound okay? Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You bought a new house with your partner of three years. When you move in, you find out there are all sorts of problems and extra costs, and you are already house poor. In order to help you save money, your partner reaches out to their ex, who is a plumber, and convinces them that if they do the work on the house for a discount, the two of them can spend some intimate time together. They end up having to make out with their ex four times, but you get all new pipes for a very reduced price. Would you stay with this cheater?
1: No. It's always (laughs) the plumber, too. right? Always the plumber. No.
2: Why isn't it for
0: free? Yeah. This is so fucked up. You're giving us you're giving us a discount. You're just
2: paying for parts. You're not paying for time. No. No, no, free. If you're making out four times, it's free. Okay, so they didn't get a good enough deal for it to be no, worth
0: saying. No, they're bad at business. They're bad at business, and I want and I want out. Do you, you agree, Jake?
1: I agree, yeah. No, and you never stay with the cheater. I don't know.
0: You're very anti-cheating.
1: I'm, like, very traditional. You know, I'm from the country. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's going to think I'm straight after this interview. Oh, God.
0: No, you know what's fun is that me and Mal were picking apples, and Jake came over and was like, hey, this is what you did to try to figure out if we were gay. You said, hey, so did you guys like find this farm on like a like a LGBTQ list or something? And we were <laughs> like, "Uh, what? And I was like, well, on your website, it definitely, there's a little part that says like, welcome, we welcome all races, sexualities, genders, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, we like figured it was a, a place, but no, we didn't Google LGBTQ friendly farms. And you were like,
1: you
0: it was like that TikTok of like, are you gay, bitch? Are you? Are you gay? Like, yeah, we're gay. Are you gay? Yeah, we're gay. Like, it was so funny.
1: They definitely look cis. Hat, yeah. Let me go stalk them in the orchard and figure out whether they're like me.
0: Yeah, you came to the orchard. You came to find us in the orchard to be like, hey, I, I'm a, hey. Are you? I'm gay. Are you gay? Really? <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, they're so few and far between. I don't have many friends here. Come on. Um. <laughs>
2: It was delightful. It was delightful. Great. But no making out with your ex, even if it gets you heavily discounted pipes. No. That's the rule.
1: No, my shower can leak on me, not my ex.
2: (laughs) Okay, the next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 14, never wants to wear a jacket because they think it ruins their outfits. You have an upcoming ski trip planned with the family and beg them to let you buy a proper down jacket. They refuse and say they will be fine wearing a stylish fleece instead. You know this isn't true, but to teach them a lesson, you don't buy them the down jacket. And once they are on the slopes, they are far too cold and can't ski the entire vacation. Are you a terrible parent?
1: This is why I'm not having kids, because they're whiny and angry. <laughs> uh, no, you're not, you're not a terrible parent. I would do that exact same thing. Freeze to death. See how you feel then.
2: (laughs) Yeah, let them suffer the consequences. So you wouldn't buy them a jacket halfway through the vacation? The whole vacation, you'd let them not ski? Oh, I see. Oh. Everyone else is skiing on the trip except this one kid. What is he doing? She's just back at the room. Oh, I
0: feel bad. She could take my jacket because I really don't want to ski. No. I'm going to go by the fire and just drink my little apres ski. And just, like, hang out. I went skiing with an ex and I had a very bad time.
1: The one and only time I went skiing, I cried. So I get it? Cried! I was 12.
0: This is our new band, Gays Crying on Skis. <laughs> That's the new LGBTQ stereotype. It's like, why are gay people so flamboyant and also always cry while skiing?
1: Fits. <laughs>
2: But so you don't think you're a terrible parent if you don't let them, if they don't ski the whole time because you are teaching them a valuable lesson about winter wear? No, no. Yeah, you're a good parent. So you are a good parent. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll put that in my manual (laughs) that I'm I'm writing. (laughs) Okay, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You have been seeing your family doctor since you were a little kid. Lately, you have been very negative and angry about your life because you wish you were a famous pop star instead of a successful biology professor. When you go in to see your doctor to complain about headaches, you complain about your life and how it's so annoying you aren't a famous pop star. (laughs) Your doctor runs some tests and tells you that you have an incurable disease and will be dead within six months. You go home devastated, but the news also gives you a new lease on life And when you see your doctor the next week, you relay that you don't want to die because you actually do love your life so much. Your doctor then reveals he made the whole thing up and you're perfectly healthy. He just wanted to snap you out of your funk about not being a famous pop star. Would you forgive this liar?
1: Why are you that person? Who are you? (laughs) I mean, no, if I was that person, if I was that terrible, no, I would not stay with my doctor. But if. I was a normal person, <laughs> I would do that. I would be the doctor.
2: You would do this prank on somebody to alter their gratitude in life? Oh,
1: 100%. Hmm,
2: interesting. I wonder if any doctors are listening.
0: <sighs> I thought you were going to say that he was going to run tests and then lie to me and say, actually, you could have never been a pop star because you have like a, a bad throat for it. And then he would say, you would say, oh, okay, it's not my fault. Mm. And then you would appreciate your life. That's what I thought. But really, your throat is fine. Right. So now that you said what you said, you threw me for a loop. And I also thought maybe that you would say, oh, because I only have six months to live, it's lit a fire under my ass. And now I'm going hard at my dream of being a pop star. <laughs> and then when I come back six months later, I'm not dead. He goes, well, didn't I do you a favor? Because now you, you became a famous pop star because you really thought that there was nothing left to lose.
2: That's not what happened at all.
0: Well, then I hate this liar. (laughs) (laughs) But it made you appreciate your life. Yeah, but telling someone you have six months to live is really bad. I'll give you that.
1: (laughs) What's your Queen Latifah in Last Holiday? Excellent movie.
0: Oh, Last Holiday. Forgot about Last Holiday. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, my God. Am I even gay? Okay. (laughs) I would not forgive this liar. No. Would you fi- go to a
2: new doctor? They've been your doctor for decades.
1: Why are you still going to your pediatric doctor? That's the first problem. Why are you seeing that your That is pediatric? weird.
2: Well, you have a problem with change.
1: They know far too much about me. <laughs> change your doctor every, like, year, every year.
2: You just
0: don't want to be known? Change your exactly. doctor every year? I don't want anyone to know me? Hard to do in our small town, Jake.
1: <laughs> I just want every doctor in the surrounding area to know all of my problems.
2: that's good advice (laughs) oh my god thank you so much for joining us where can people find out more about you and your wonderful farm
1: at windy bar farms that's the simplest way come eat ice cream
2: love it the instagram is curated
0: so beautifully like it's one of the most beautiful instagrams i've ever seen so please go check it out
1: i appreciate it
2: thank you so much Stick around after the break, we'll be talking all about my new book, Overthinking About You. Yay! Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Top X! XXXXXXX, X, 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 baby! Baby! Tell us about your book. <laughs> So I got this like the loveliest message from a fan that was like, "Hey, I just want to say that you should you should hype up your own stuff, <laughs> and that like you Thank shouldn't you. you shouldn't be embarrassed about promoting your work, and that we want to hear about it." And so, was this fan me? <laughs> and so, as we're in that pre-order campaign time, which is like so vital for the success of the book, I said, "You know what, Allison." You come up with the topic every week. Why not make the topic your book? (laughs) Please. Uh, I mean, God, you got to promote
0: stuff. You always feel so weird about it. Okay, so uh, start. Give me the pitch. What do people
2: need to do? What do people need to know? (laughs) So basically, overthinking about you, if you haven't been listening to this podcast for the last two years where I've been talking about it, is basically like a roadmap for navigating relationships and dating when you have anxiety, OCD, or depression. And it comes out on May 3rd, and in the book world, pre-orders basically either make or break your book. And so I would Uh love if you're able to, for you to go and pre-order the book now, you can get it pretty much wherever books are sold. And if you're an international listener, the Strand Bookstore in New York not only ships internationally, but they have signed copies of the book. So if you order from (gasps) them, then you can get a signed copy, which is, you know, anyone can order from them, obviously. And then also we're doing this really exciting pre-order campaign where if you pre-order the book, you can also get free merchandise. So like if you live in the US, then you can get a notebook with an original emotional support lady cartoon on it, a exclusive pen that says overthinking about you. And then if you live internationally, you get a free digital download, which is basically like a poster version of the emotional support lady cartoon. And so Woo! we're really trying to get people to, to order ahead of time. Buying a physical copy of the book, I think, is more helpful than buying a Kindle version. But if you're a Kindle person, buy the Kindle version. Do whatever mm-hmm. you can to read the book. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm equally excited and really, really scared. <laughs> so what, what sort of stuff could we get a taste for in, in this book? Great question, Gabby. So basically I kind of cover like the trajectory of relationships. So we like sort of start off with like how do you handle breakups better? Some like different ways to reframe ba- breakups, some better coping skills. There's a chapter all about like how do you tell the difference between who you are and and then the symptoms of your disorder. So like that kind of touches on like relationship OCD, relationship anxiety, you know, what are real doubts versus what might just be your you know, your mental health acting up and interfering with your relationship. I, uh, there's a chapter about medication, what to expect from medication, how side effects from medication can interfere in our relationships. There's a whole chapter on how to productively date, which I think mm-hmm. is, is hopefully really helpful and, you know, a lot of tangible advice for navigating um, online dating as well as IRL dating. And then for the first time ever, ever, I talk about my sex life. Pretty <gasps> vividly.
0: <laughs> I'm doing the home alone. like,
2: <gasps> <laughs> Well, because I I just had to make this decision when I was writing the book where I was like, you know, obviously, that's a big part of romantic relationships. And it's it's been a an ongoing struggle for me in terms of how my anxiety plays a part. And so I really was like, well, I can't really write this book without talking about this. And so mm-hmm. chapter six. Has a lot of stuff I have I have never, ever talked about or spoken about before. I think hopefully it will help other people because I know for me with my stuff and my issues, I don't really see it talked about a lot, which has made me no. feel really alone and isolated. And so hopefully the goal, like even if you haven't had my exact experiences, it will make you feel a little more comfortable in yours and a little less Stigmatized.
0: Congratulations.
2: Thank you. So I'm really, I'm really scared for this book to come out, with one of the main reasons being that chapter that people I know in real life will, if they read the book, will read that chapter. Yeah. My parents did not. (laughs) My mom helped me edit the whole book except for chapter six. Uh, (laughs) Good for them. Good boundaries. (laughs) Good boundaries. (laughs) Thank you. But, you know, like my friends will read it. Like, who knows, colleagues might read it. Like, it is a really, it is a vulnerability that I've never ever publicly shared before Mm -hmm. and then I'm also just scared because I've I've put so much pressure on this book to be successful for my overall career and I think Mm. for like the last like year and a half I was like well everything will be things will really change once the book comes out if the book is a hit then then I'll finally be secure in in this career then I'll finally be at the next level like then this will find this will this will save me and i'm realizing as the the release date approaches that like i have to take that pressure off of myself that like this book could very well come and go and like it might help 10 people and that would be great what bitch you already have a second book deal what are you talking about <laughs> Yeah, but I think I just like in my head, I was like, this is a make or break moment for me. This will either change my career or my career will fall. Like I just like, you know how all or nothing thinking like I've just put so much pressure on myself about this book being successful and what that will or won't mean for my future. But you've secured you've secured a
0: future because people clearly see something in you enough to have you already get a second book deal.
2: Yeah. And that's wonderful. But like financially, that second book deal, is it going to like carry me forward? You know, like true, like the money from books is not the money you get from TV or films like it's it's money, but it's not. You know what I mean? Um, Yes.
0: But you're growing your brand and you're solidifying yourself as an expert in this in this area that can only like grow because you already know it's growing.
2: I hope so. But it's, you know, you know what it's like. It's like you see other people's books come out and suddenly they're on the Today Show and then they're being interviewed everywhere and they're getting all these write-ups. And it's like, it's such a tangible way to compare yourself to other people. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I'm entering that and I am having to work really hard to be like, if Cosmo doesn't write up my book, if Bustle doesn't write up my book, if all Mm -hmm. these, you know, these external, you know, validators don't care about my book, that's okay. And yeah. like, I wrote this book to help people. Mm-hmm. And I can't focus on the numbers of how many people it helps, and more just like, if it helps anyone, then it accomplished the goal. Excuse me. Hello. This is
0: Gabby from Just Between Us. <laughs> like, s- thousands, thousands of you listen to this show. If you listen to this goddamn show and you don't pre order Allison's book, I'm mad at you. I'm actually <laughs> mad at you. You personally, I'm angry. And I, and I want to know why. No, I don't want to know why. There's no excuse. There's thousands of you. Order the goddamn book. Thank you.
2: I won't be mad at you, but I will be incredibly appreciative if you do pre-order. <laughs> I'll be mad because that's kind of my thing. <laughs> Melissa, do you want to come on in and, and share your thoughts?
3: Buy the damn book. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Seriously.
3: Yeah, I'm happy for you. Uh congratulations. You've been working very hard on this and way mm-hmm. to go. Oh,
2: thank you. And there's also gonna be some live events. We're gonna have live event in LA. I'll be there. I know Gabby is, is my in conversation partner for the LA event. There's gonna It's gonna be, be hard because we never we've we don't talk at all. So I, know. I don't know anything. <laughs> well, you haven't even you haven't read the full book yet. No, I haven't. So you gotta you gotta read it. See what you think. Yeah.
3: Do you have dates?
2: Um, I, I do have dates. I will be blasting on social media. So if you're in L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, or New York, I'm coming to you in May. Our date is the April 29th, right? Our date in L.A. is May 3rd, which is the day the book oh, comes May out. Oh, May 3rd. I might come. You might come, Melissa? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Isn't that so classic that I'm hosting it and I'm like, what day is it? Yeah, you
2: had
3: the wrong day. I know. I was a little
2: worried about that. Um, <laughs> It's May 3rd. Got it. Yeah, I knew
3: the whole time. It's May 3rd and I will be there. You put it in your calendar when Allison asked you about it, like when we were recording.
0: Yeah, it's my party and I'll show up (laughs) on the wrong day if I want
2: to. (laughs) It was originally the 29th and it got moved because the pub day got pushed a week. Got it. So I'll forgive you.
3: (laughs) At least you would have been early and not late. That's Mm. true. That's Mm -hmm. true.
2: Well,
0: that's amazing. You can find information. It'll be in different cities. And me and Allison's will
3: be May 3rd in Los Angeles.
2: And maybe we can put the link for the pre-order form in this this episode description.
3: Not maybe. It will be in the description.
2: Yay.
0: So I give this show 11 out of 10
2: Allison's book. (laughs) I give this show... 14 out of 7 please and thank yous for ordering.
3: <laughs> I give it 100 out of 90. Go order the goddamn book right now.
2: <laughs> mm, this is me holding my fist up <laughs> threatening you. Thank you guys. And thank you so much for letting me feel comfortable to do this on the show and for encouraging me to do it. It means a lot to me. Obviously. Uh, well, thank you to Jake Hunt for being our guest. Just Between Us is the Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn, produced by Melissa Big D
0: Monts, Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free,
2: sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team
0: to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, at SheIsNotMelissa, and the link to Allison's book pre-order below. Bye! (laughs) Forever Dog!